0: Welcome to Real Estate 2020 Vision, the podcast connecting you with the people and the products shaping the future of the residential industry globally. My name is Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and today I'm super excited to welcome onto the show none other than Bella Peacock, Managing Director of Investment Management and Operations at Greystar Europe. First of all, Bella, a very warm welcome onto the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you.
0: Now, over the course of your career, you've seen pretty much every part of the residential industry. You started out in student accommodation at Unite Group. You then moved on to service departments at Native. And now you're heading up multifamily and student accommodation asset management and operations for Greystar Europe. I have to say, your career really does bring to life this convergence of residential real estate and hospitality. So I'm fascinated to learn how you got into it and how it all started.
1: It certainly wasn't um, a kind of long-held ambition since childhood. I didn't have any family members um, or kind of you know close friends growing up that were in the industry. Um, You know I guess as I went to university it wasn't something that I had in mind as somewhere to go after that. I studied geography, it was a really good blend of you know, more scientific, more economic aspects and really a heavy focus on the human and the people element. And that kind of kept me interested and kept me busy for the three years at uni. So when I then left uni, I guess most of my friends were going into accountancy and law I was very clear that I did not want to do any more exams for the foreseeable and it sort of had my fill of studying for the time being. So I guess I was looking around for something that used some of those skills from the geography degree, but also would kind of keep me interested and excited. And I guess in that sense, I sort of fell into real estate. I was looking at some sort of HR type roles. I was looking at real estate and I was looking at um, kind of consumer goods type roles this opportunity came up at the unite group which was not a typical sort of grad scheme or anything like that but i thought that sounds good i like property i've always enjoyed looking at estate agent particulars you know i drove around the m25 to an assessment center in the most horrendous hail and i got the job and i guess you know everything else has followed from that point
0: well i guess we should all thank the unite group for that (laughs) so what's gone on to motivate and drive you in your career would you say
1: I think, I mean, I've been really fortunate in the roles that I've had that they've always been, I guess, in businesses that are growing a lot. And that brings with it lots of new challenge and I guess excitement and different problems to solve. And I think having that that sort of movement and growth has been really key in kind of my motivation and my commitment. I think You know, again, sort of building from the university days, something that's really key for me as an individual and my motivation is being interested and excited and enjoying what I do. That's what real estate has been able to provide because there's always a new challenge. You know, any day you think you've got your day planned and there will always be something else that comes up. I think with residential real estate, particularly, you know, you're dealing with people's homes. It's sort of very real and very tangible. and Yeah, that's what's always kind of, I guess, kept me engaged and kept me motivated. You know, and I don't, I don't think it's anything more complicated than that. It needs to be enjoyable and it needs to be challenging. And I've been very fortunate that, um, you know, that's what my career has been
0: so far. Would you say you're an ambitious and driven person or do you consider those ugly words?
1: <laughs> They're definitely not ugly words. I think it's interesting. I'm certainly not a career strategist. You know, I I think I am ambitious. I think my family and friends probably would say I'm driven, but they're not necessarily qualities that I would put top of the list if I was explaining myself. I didn't set out at the beginning of my 20s and said, this is where I want to be by the time I'm 30, or, you know, this is where I see myself at 40. I've sort of flexed, I guess, my focus and where I'm trying to develop my skills in accordance with what opportunities are available. But I think, yeah, somewhere within that ambition and drive must play a part.
0: (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the Bella outside of work. Now, how would your friends and family maybe describe you? Where do you call home, for example?
1: So home for me, um, I guess I've been in London since um, I graduated, so... London's definitely a second home but home is um, out in the countryside in Surrey. With the COVID world that we find ourselves in I'm certainly not leading any trends when I say we've we've realised that the third floor walk up with a baby is perhaps not the most optimum living <laughs> arrangement um, and so we're currently trying to engineer our move to the countryside to have I guess a bit more space, a bit more fresh air, and most importantly, grandparents close by. It's been great being in London, but I'm definitely a, a sort of country bumpkin at heart.
0: And how might your friends and family describe the Bella that they know and love?
1: I don't know. It, it's, it's an interesting one. It, it's one of those questions where people, you, you understand how people at work describe you because you sort of talk about it in your annual reviews and things. But I don't often kind of canvas my, my friends and family. I think they would describe me as sort of hardworking, loyal, quite a keen cook, probably frustratingly badly organised when it comes to sort of social and personal things. Oh, thank
0: heavens, you're fallible like the rest of us. So it sounds like you're able to switch seamlessly between work Bella and home Bella.
1: So I probably wouldn't have said I did, but I think working from home and sort of having, oh, I guess, almost both environments collide. I think now I'd probably recognise that I do have that that switch of right now I'm in in work mode you know, there's definitely a lot of consistency. I think I'm quite a calm
0: person. And that calmness must be a massive attribute when you're working for a company that's really not known for moving slowly. In fact, let's turn our attention now to Star and talk a little bit about what you guys are up to or have been up to these last few months. You quietly acquired a handful of Nido assets, student assets from KKR in what is clearly a concerted move back into regional student. Can you maybe share with us a bit of the strategy there that's driven that deal?
1: We started out as a business in the UK with regional student platforms, really born out of um, a huge opportunity there where, you know, student is already, I guess, a relatively established asset class and established asset class in the UK. But what we still see in, you know, most of the market is significant undersupply of sort of purpose-built, professionally managed accommodation and also really strong sort of demographic underlying trends. So, you know there are going to be more and more 18 year olds um, both domestically and coming in internationally and that when you when you kind of combine that with the fact that there's still significant undersupply of professionally managed accommodation that makes a you know a really good story and i think as well overlaid with that um, obviously at the moment a lot of students live in converted flats house shares and there's an increasing pressure on that sort of traditional rental stock as well from growing population of people renting, you know, more family formation, all of those sorts of things. So you sort of got these, I guess, macro trends going on that, um, you know, lead into the investment thesis um, on that sense. I think in terms of, you know, why, you know, why this, why now, why this deal? Ultimately, you know, we've we've been looking at things over the last few years with the the IQ transaction that happened um, last year. That sort of, I guess, freed us up to, to go back into the regions, which is something that's always remained, I guess, a strategic ambition for us. And this was you know, the right opportunity at the right time. Good scale. Um, as a business, we do tend to look for scale. And therefore, you know, as I say, this, this made sense um, for the business at this time. Now,
0: Greystar recently unveiled Greenford Key, the UK's biggest built to rent development, and also 10 Degrees, the world's largest modular tower. That's the world's largest modular tower. I have to say, the pace does seem absolutely relentless. Can you tell us a little bit about these projects?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's it's really interesting when you look at Greenfield and when you look at 10 Degrees, they are such different projects. But I think for me, they really talk about what the future of, um, you know, of purpose-built, purpose-designed rental product can be and sort of probably should be going forward and show really, I guess, the breadth of what we do as a business in this space. You know, um, I think there's been a lot of focus as an industry on how do we define build to rent or multifamily, all of these things. And I think almost when you look at these schemes, they're, as I say, they're both so different, but they're they're sort of anchored in, in the same goal of this purpose designed, purpose built, professionally managed creation of rental communities to really serve a need, you know, within London, within other markets around the UK for that kind of product, I think. Um, you know 10 degrees as you say the world's tallest modular tower From most of our other deals in London you can see 10 degrees (laughs) sailmakers in Canary Wharf or whether you're you know our student um, assets across the across the capital you know you could always see 10 degrees somewhere and I think you know it's just obviously sort of physically it's a landmark building and that's always super exciting to be involved in a project like that there's great sort of environmental credentials from the modular build process you know I think I'm going to probably quote the wrong precise percentage but it's something like 67% less energy from that method of construction versus more traditional methods and therefore you know it's it's sort of exciting in terms of pushing the boundaries of of the sort of construction and as I say the environmental side but also as a proposition for renters you know to be able to have an apartment that's you know really highly specified great furnishing package package but more than that it's the community that we create in the buildings having the amenity spaces that mean you know particularly in this world we find ourselves in that you know you can have a great apartment but you also have access to great fitness facilities and um, you know co-working spaces relaxation spaces you know spaces you can host a dinner party with your friends so you know I think it just is such a great showcase of I guess, what a number of us in this market have been talking about for some
0: time. One of the things that is just so exciting about institutional development is the quality of the resident experience that is being baked into these buildings through the amenities on offer. And scale operators like Greystar, typically from the US, where the local market over there is frankly more evolved and resident experience is right at the very top of the agenda, they bring all that knowledge and understanding over here to local markets and they're building rental housing, which is frankly very materially driving up the quality of living in this country. I mean, what's not to like? (laughs) This is just such a positive thing at a social level. It just opens up access to better quality living. To touch upon one thing very briefly, Bella, the environmental impact of the modular building process, which you alluded to, where does that sit within Greystar's overall corporate agenda? I mean, obviously, it's a huge topic at an industry level, but how exactly does it fit in with your remit, for example?
1: Um, Well, I guess, you know, as you say, it's, it's super important as an industry. We have a sustainability resource group across Europe that brings together all of our functions. So from the development, maintenance, kind of renovation space. Our ongoing operational space and then our, you know, our sort of investor relationship. So, you know, something that is a really key priority for us. And I think, you know, where we are as a business is really understanding where the best place to invest is because there's so many technologies now coming forward in this space. And I think, you know, probably one of the age old challenges with innovation, whether that's tech innovation or whether it's more specifically around this environmental space is picking the right thing at the right time to really drive sustained change. You know, you don't sort of do something that is the best thing then, but then in five years time, it's obsolete. So I think, you know, our our resource group is really working to answer those questions for us. And I think, you know, using the modular construction methods has been a really good case study for us to sort of demonstrate the art of the possible and kind of really hone us in on that and I think you know for me personally it's something that you know is is very important to me it's really understanding how we balance the need to really address climate change with trying to improve sort of overall comfort and quality of life and I think that's something you know that we obviously look at as a business but also for me personally it's that sort of how, how can we do both because I think you've got to be able to do both for people to adopt an approach and and move things forward. All of
0: these environmental credentials, you know, the increasing amenitization of space, surely come together to have some kind of impact on the price point. What is the impact upon affordability? And where does affordability sit in Star's overall hierarchy of concerns?
1: You know, we obviously look at every project on its merit, and that comes down to the location, who we think is going to want to rent in an area. You know, we the do audience, an awful yeah. lot of work on our kind of customer insights resident insights piece we have an internal team that leads that for us obviously working with a lot of different external data sources as well regularly do focus groups and do a lot of engagement with the local authorities as as we bring um, projects through as well so you know the, the building and i guess the affordability criteria is so variable coming back to i guess an earlier point around scale amenitizing something doesn't have to mean that it's pushing its affordability bracket because if you do something at scale you can provide those spaces at really very little kind of unit cost and that's really key, sort of key to the gray star model you know we're not developing hundred unit schemes where yes putting you know even something as simple as a residence lounge and a concierge is actually really sort of inhibitively expensive yeah. on a smaller mm-hmm. deal if you're you know greenford is you know, kind of upwards of 1,500 rental homes we will have on the Greenford site once it's finished um, delivery. So we can provide, you know, really extensive both unit, you know, block amenities as well as public realm, and do that at, you know, at rental rates that are still, you know, affordable to our target market within that that submarket. So you know we always look at affordability you know whenever we're assessing a project you know we don't want to be narrowing our target mark to a point that we're making our our lease up super challenging and ultimately you know i think you said it's it's about building sustainable communities so you know i guess people think of amenities in different ways and, and sometimes you hear people say oh well an amenity is just a marketing tool people don't really use it and I think you know if that was the case then our business model wouldn't stand because you know we want people to live somewhere for longer than their initial tenancy and to want to stay and to want to renew and build their home there and therefore if if we were doing things just to kind of bring people in but not deliver value, then people would move on. And so I think, it, yeah, it's all about assessing project by project, what the right mix is, what your target is, and, and de- designing a product that's going to drive
0: value for that target group. Understanding the market and, you know, fitting your product to that market is eminently sensible um, and makes total sense. I want to turn our attention now, Bella, to equality, diversity and inclusion in real estate. This is an industry that's often dubbed slow to adapt and traditional. As a successful female leader, I want to hear your opinions as to what the industry can do better or, or do more of to be more equal, diverse and inclusive.
1: I'd probably always say there's more we can do and there's more we can do faster on these topics. I mean, they are very kind of close to my heart and something I'm pretty passionate about. So I would always say we can do more and quicker. But I do think the industry in the last five years probably has made great strides. And, you know, probably when I compare experience for people coming into the industry now versus when i came into the industry i think that has moved on and you know we have got those green shoots which is great you know i think the organizations like real estate balance that are operating to sort of help support this journey you know are doing really great work and putting this very firmly on the agenda of the broad spectrum of real estate you know funds traditional developers you know lawyers, banks, all all of the people that sort of work in the industry, I think, are now aware that this is something that we need to think about. I think in terms of what we could do more of, I sort of try and subdivide it. There's a lot we can do with the the sort of current population, shall we say, within real estate, and how can we make sure that opportunities are opened up so that, you know, a diverse group of people, to the extent that they are in the industry, progress and and find that kind of career growth and get to where they want to get to with, within that. I think almost before that, though, and, and where a big focus needs to be and kind of is, is beginning to be, is how do we get more people into to real estate in the first place? Because you do still hear the sort of age old, well, we tried to recruit more women or we tried to re- recruit more people from diverse backgrounds, but they just didn't apply. And, you know, as a recruiter, you know, I, c- I can understand that because it's a challenge I have faced at various points trying to, you know, trying to kind of bring people into roles but that can't be the sort of end of that problem we've we've got to look and say well okay how do we get more people interested in this career route how do we um you know kind of get into schools get into universities think about what are what are the sort of true qualifications we need for real estate careers you know do you have to have done a real estate degree to be successful in real estate you know I think I would be an example of no. And I've, you know, had a great career so far. So I think, you know, it's, it's how do we open the doors? And I can't remember this specific statement, but I heard someone recently say real estate is kind of considered a closed industry. You know, people don't really know how to get into it. They don't really know what the career paths are. And I think kind of cracking that piece You know, not necessarily making change this year or next year or in three years time, but making change in five and 10 years time. How do we make people aware? Because I I am quite passionate about this. It makes me frustrated because, you know, whether you're interested in sales and marketing or whether you're interested in people or whether you're interested in, you know, deals and numbers or, you know, whatever it is. And there are so many specialisms. So, you know, it's such a broad market. And so that, that more people aren't sort of aware of that and aware of the different routes in and the different routes they could move around once they got in as well. I
0: completely agree. And I really don't think it works in the industry's favour that it's perceived to be you know, made up of closed networks and nowhere more so than on the deal structuring and deal making side, i.e. the economic side of the business. So there's a lot of evolution that has to happen. Social media, you know, platforms like LinkedIn are incredibly powerful at breaking down these barriers and, you know, allowing people access to and greater transparency into the networks that exist. If I can be blunt, Bella, to what extent has gender discrimination been something that you've had to face up to in your career? Is it something that you've had to, you know, witness firsthand?
1: I don't think for me it's been a, I guess, necessarily a direct challenge. I think there have been a few points, probably in my career, where I've had sort of slight light bulb moments and thought, okay. I need to think about things differently because the way, not even real estate, but just society and, you know, how we're all brought up has impacted sort of maybe my my confidence or my ambition or my sort of belief in where I should be and that my sort of worthiness of a, of a role. And I've sort of had to say, hang on a minute, take yourself out from this and look at the people around you and And sort of objectively compare yourself it's not only women that can have imposter syndrome it's not only women that feel that they want to be fully fully qualified for a job before they go to it but they are sort of more typically things that i think women kind of wrestle with and therefore i think yeah there have been points as i say in my career i've i've sort of thought hang on a minute if you put a different hat on how would you think about this and therefore just just kind of go forward and, and put two feet in and i think you know sometimes it's almost a little mantra I say to myself say, I know you're uncomfortable with this conversation. I know you don't want to have this, but is that partly because of your conditioning? <laughs> and, and therefore, you've just got to kind of put that to one side, have the conversation and move on, even if it makes me uncomfortable. I don't personally feel direct discrimination. I think there's always entertaining, kind of, well, entertaining is maybe too flippant, but, you know, there are sort of anecdotes and scenarios you can kind of laugh at after the event. And I remember, you know, in my early days, I used to be kind of on the project management side and I guess I was a kind of client side project manager so I would regularly go to on site design team and sort of construction meetings and at the time I would have been I don't know 23 or 25 and I would have been the only girl woman female who'd probably ever been on a particular site and been in those those meetings at the time and you know there was the age-old people assumed I was a secretary people you know they would apologize um if they swore which I always found sort of just quite entertaining and I think those <laughs> things have have thankfully improved you know I think that's sort of really you know when you kind of walk into a meeting room and everyone lo- looks at you and thinks well you know what are you doing here and assumes that you won't want a bacon sandwich because you're a girl you think well hang on <laughs> a minute you know I eat breakfast just like everyone else <laughs> But, you know, I think I think that has moved on. I hope that has moved
0: on. You mentioned imposter syndrome, which is fascinating because it's probably something that, that men suffer from just as much as women, but it's not talked about. So I guess what can businesses do more of to support their workforce and support ambitious professional entrepreneurial talents to fulfill their potential and deliver greater value for the company?
1: I think one of the things that businesses can do is really genuinely commit to recognizing the value in diversity and whether that's gender diversity or ethnic diversity or just diversity of characters and backgrounds and ways of approaching things. I think, you know, as, as my job has got broader and I guess more European and you know, span beyond the asset management side into operations. I've had the great fortune of working with a much more diverse group of people. And I think that's shown me the value that that brings. And I think all of us gravitate towards similarity. We as individuals feel less challenged if you're talking to people that have the same opinion and same outlook as you. But I think, you know, what I've seen, and I think what we've done really well at cultivating within Greystar is that you want to sort of balance a known way of doing things with new knowledge and new experience and and bring those things together and i think that's what i would encourage businesses to do and you know do it really genuinely not not pay lip service to it but say you know we we are going to recognize and we are going to benefit from the value that having diverse perspectives brings practically and it's obviously something that is quite top of my mind at the moment having just come back from maternity leave i do think we put a lot of focus on you know, obviously gender diversity, which needs, and within gender diversity, the focus is on women and what we can do to support women and what we can do to, you know, give flexibility around working. Now, my partner took a month of paternity leave, and that has been so eye-opening for him to to look after our daughter on his own for a month, to appreciate, I guess, what <laughs> I've been doing for, for the previous nine months. But I think, you know, to really force us to consider our joint roles both as working, you know, working parents, but also as parents in a family. And I think I guess what I'm trying to get at here is for businesses, part of enabling women and other sort of diversity to flourish is about sort of giving everyone the room to be a full person. And, and that's also men, you know, the, the sort of light bulb moment for me in this is if we can support men in taking a bigger role in the family, then that will that will kind of make it easier for everyone yes. to progress and move forwards. With any, um, you know, any kind of initiative, I think you can't just focus on the group you're trying to help. You've got to focus on the broader environment and how you foster just an environment that allows people to be successful, regardless of their sort of individual characteristics.
0: It's probably time in this conversation, Bella, to doff the hat to COVID. Obviously, no sector of the economy has been left unscathed, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on which areas of the residential sector have been hardest hit and maybe why they've been hardest hit.
1: The areas that have been hit are those areas that rely on the more transient and the more um, kind of expat or international communities. I think, you know, we've seen certainly within the UK context that there's actually been pockets, countryside, for example, have done pretty well you know there are areas at the market that have really really fed pretty positively through the pandemic but i think yeah you know areas which i think spans you know beyond the residential space but areas that have relied more on our our transient you know kind of project based workers those sorts of things where people would be moving in and out of areas for shorter periods you know i guess the extension of what we've seen in the hotel space into into that kind of corporate housing service department space has probably been pretty significantly hit and I think yeah you know parts of London um, and uh, you know other areas we see this across Europe as well that traditionally have had very international communities um, where people you know largely kind of went home at the beginning of the pandemic or at position now you know people aren't moving around the world as much but I think you know my personal opinion I think our opinion more generally is these areas will recover you know it's People, the, the desire for people to live in different countries, to experience different cultures, to move around the world for work, a study, that will return. It's just a case of, you know, when and what can we do to help support that when it happens.
0: And specifically with regards to student, I mean, obviously, Greystar has a, a very significant student business. And that was a sector that was, you know, very seriously disrupted due to COVID. I mean, obviously, you were away on maternity leave for the most part. But what was that like to manage through and what challenges did that posed to you as a business?
1: Certainly, for me personally, from a professional perspective, it as I'm sure is for most people, is the biggest challenge of my career is understanding how to navigate that. Because I think at the heart of it, you want to do the right thing by your residents and students in this case, and particularly on our chapter portfolio in London, we have a predominantly international student base. So, as the pandemic hit, what you find yourself is you've got students who are a long way from home dealing with a unknown and trying to sort of I guess work through that on an emotional level but at the same time you know what does that mean contractually and all of those sorts of things so I think it was such a big challenge I think what we base ourselves in is you've got to do the right thing by your residence this is a long-term game right you know we're not in the business of student accommodations for one academic year We're you know we've got A reputation and an experience and a strategy to deliver over the long term and therefore that's I guess taking a step back what we had to do and say okay how can we support our residents and make the right commercial decisions through a completely unprecedented situation but really always being mindful of the fact that this isn't about what happens for the next six or 12 months this is about what happens for the next five years and how do we you know the the sort of trust and the, you know, the the loyalty that we've built up, you know, we don't want to erode that through a, a challenging circumstance. So I think that was really, I guess, the guiding force as we did navigate that period. And I think really with all of these things and, you know, you always come out the other side of, I, I think, any challenging situation stronger, but it really did demonstrate the, the sort of commitment of our team members, the resiliency of the team, but I think also just that really highlighted for me, and it sounds so cheesy, but the importance of communication. And that was, you know, being really proactive and communicating with our residents, as I said, in the same way that we were dealing with challenges as a business and personally ourselves, our residents were going through this, this huge challenge as well. So being proactive, communicating is obviously really key. You know, with our investment partners, the same thing. No one knew, you know, when sort of February, March hit last year, We didn't know whether this was going to be a three-month thing. You know, we had no idea. Um, I went on maternity leave at the end of May and we were sort of joking, oh, I wonder if we'll still be at home when you come back. And it was a joke. And we are, you know, no one one kind of could have foreseen that. But I think, you know, communicating with our partners and our lenders and all, all of the different kind of pieces of the puzzle, ultimately by being kind of open and transparent with the communication what we were doing for our different sort of stakeholder groups, I think, you know, stood I think, instead.
0: Do you think the pandemic has changed the playing field in any way and given rise to new opportunities that previously didn't exist? What are the attacking plays that Greystar maybe now sees coming out of this?
1: From an investment perspective, yes, there are opportunities. The world was obviously put on hold a little bit for a period. So there's sort of, I guess, a weight of opportunity that almost builds up behind that. And as things are starting to to open and become more positive now, I think you know being in a strong capital position having really strong as i say long-term strategies you know we fund you know we are a residential only company we fundamentally believe in residential it has proven again through covid it's incredibly resilient and therefore you know i think that puts us in a really strong position now um, mm. to continue to grow our portfolio um having demonstrated again that resilience and you know i guess the the attributes of of this asset class and these strategies and I think all we see um, you know in the press and as we see as a business is more and more institutional capital wanting this asset class I think the other thing that it did is very quickly it forced us all to be more agile um, you know it forced us to improve our virtual touring our, our online leasing journeys how we interact with our residents um, you know kind of virtually as well as in person you know it, it's definitely expedited yeah. general move in
0: that direction. I'd completely agree that this has been a positive catalyst in many respects that's forced industry actors to have a bit of an epiphany and and accelerate digital transformation. Um, there's been a bit of a dawning of realization that, you know, maybe as an industry we have rested on our laurels a little bit too long and not innovated sufficiently. And that's forcing very, very positive change, which trickles all the way through the value chain down. To the experience of the end user and creates a whole you know a whole new level of agility frankly for operators in this space so that's a very positive thing i just want to touch upon something else briefly which you've alluded to for the second time which is the value of being a scale operator there's often a narrative in the market that small is good you know better quality of service allows you to focus more on customers etc but really when it comes to building homes let's be honest being an operator of scale allows you to have the economic firepower and capacity to be both aggressive when opportunity knocks and you know more defensive and resilient when disaster strikes obviously building a business of scale and an operation of scale is no mean feat but but this whole context really does point to the value in fact it's a case study of why it pays to be a scale operator and the benefit the
1: importance of our home environment i think has been re-highlighted it's always been i guess of political importance sort of home standards but really thinking to our our comments kind of earlier on around that living environment and how we supplement not just a good apartment but with ever the experience and the community that goes with that and i think covid again has sort of highlighted how important that is and how we should think about that in how we design and deliver the spaces that we live in and, and how we activate those communities. And I think you know, that, that's been really clear to see. And, we, and we, when COVID hit, I mean, we, we have full um, kind of community events programs and we kind of went, okay, we can't, we can't do those now. What are we gonna do? So we went entirely online and that, you know, that will, will continue. People will be yeah. able to opt into an online program or they can go to a space and do it. But I think again, having the scale enables us to deliver those services which seems to be the direction of travel we're going to be spending more time at home those things will just go more and more to improving the overall experience for for people
0: you've actually just alluded to it but customer experience and customer journey are really hot topics right now at an industry level now bella you've you've seen a lot of the residential industry in your career what do you think are the really hot trends in this space with regards to online and offline customer experience and customer journey, And how, how is demand changing and how customer experience strategies adapting to meet that shifting demand? The fact that we're talking about customer experience and resident
1: journey. Or residential real estate is, is, is his, phenomenal kind of, <laughs> his, but I think back to when I started my career that in itself is kind of mo- mind-blowing and I think hugely exciting because it does you know I think we we said before it's sort of you know real estate is seen as one of the kind of last traditional industries and I think the fact that we we think about our residents as customers although we like to use the term resident you know we are recognizing that people have choice and even where maybe those choices are limited we should still be really you know really dialed into what the experience is and where it can be improved and i think in terms of trends you know there's often a conversation around you know do people want in person or do they want digital you know do people want that that kind of personal service a personal tour or do they want to be able to do everything completely hands-free and i think what we're seeing increasingly again is that people want choice you know you can choose when you buy a car or a dress or whatever Mm -hmm. whether you go to a showroom or go to a shop or whether you get that online you know some people like the act of going out and doing those things and some people would far rather do it from the kind of comfort of their own home and I think that's what we're seeing in resident experience is how do we design a customer journey that allows people to modify that without it being so bespoke that it's inefficient to deliver as an operator. I think that's really where we see the technology coming in of allowing people to customize, you know, we use the customize word quite a lot and having a customized journey, you know, if they want to use a chat service, if they want to speak to someone, if they want to have that online leasing tool, what's the technology that we need to kind of thread that journey through? And I think, you know, maybe that's that's not I guess a trend specifically, but I think that's something that we're really focused on as a business is making sure that you know our tech stack and our infrastructure allows people to interact with that journey in a way that feels comfortable for them I do think that there's there's obviously a trend towards using you know whether it's sort of more traditional tech or whether it's moving into the AI space but using more technology to do those things that don't add and I'm sort of hesitant to say value but don't add sort of specific value to the customer experience, so that the people that you do have as actual, you know, human beings Humans, can yeah. really focus on that. And I think that's, you know, that's something again that has moved forward. And you know, as you as you said, I've worked in the service department, the student, the residential space, and the system environment has been behind, you know, hospitality and those things. And I think that's kind of the trend we're seeing to to allow us as consumers, as customers, as residents to To interact with with that journey in a way that is more familiar to us from the other purchasing decisions we make in our lives.
0: In the context of Graystar, how integral is the technology infrastructure and architecture to the actual delivery of your customer experience and your customer proposition?
1: I'd say it's it's one of the key building blocks. And I think when we look to the future, it you know, it is a key part of that that kind of future strategy. And I think this is this is kind of one of the, I guess, the sort of operational challenges with tech, because you kind of know your goal, but then you've also got the here and now while you kind of develop that ideal kind of end platform. So I'd say, you know, right now and probably historically, you know, we've always had a large part of our model kind of built off that tech stack. But I think with a a strong kind of reliance on our people, you know, people have always been, will always be such a key part of our business. It's such a key part of kind of delivering that experience for our residents. But what we increasingly see is the role that tech can play to enable us to focus those people on that experience and so I think for that reason tech is absolutely you know central to our strategic goals. If I looked at my, my diary and the meetings I have it's probably the thing I talk about most.
0: Okay so here's a question for you finish this sentence by 2030 grey star will be what?
1: by 2030, Grace, I will continue to be the leader in rental housing globally. And we will be delivering a resident experience that is world leading and based off, you know, a really intuitive tech stack. And I think, you know, one of the key things when we look forward 10 years is thinking about a resident journey, not just as sort of a single point of lease to living with us to eventually moving out, but thinking about how do we support residents through where they live as students, where they live as young professionals, where they live when they're starting a family, where they live, you know, as they're heading to retirement. So I think that that's something that in in 10 years time, I think, um, you know, we'll
0: see. There's an awful lot of venture capital money coming to PropTech these days. So if I was to ask you for a moment to don your hat as a VC and give you a pot of cash to place bets, where would you invest What are the technologies and innovations that are addressing some of the gaps and the opportunities that exist in the residential space
1: it is that resident experience piece and you know there's a lot of great and exciting work going on at the moment anything that can sort of facilitate that delivery you know this sector is going to grow it's going to get more institutional there's going to be more institutional management out there and therefore tools that help deliver that for the benefit of that resident journey and i think in that link together all the aspects because i think one of the the challenges that you see today is that there are lots of great technologies out there but you are forever having to do a new api with your property management system or whatever it might be and so i yeah. think having technologies that can truly kind of plug in and link and that people can build their kind of customer journey using would be awesome. incredibly useful i think the other area is is more about the physical real estate and i think you know there's there's a lot going on with that but i think uh, particularly as we look more at sustainability we think more about the long term sort of sustainability and use of buildings but i think you know one of the things when you go through transaction processes and when you're managing a building is there's still an awful lot that is paper you know there's still a, an awful lot that can you know you kind of rely on much more sort of outdated processes should we say to transfer information yeah sort of through the life cycle of an asset the physical real estate so i think you know, this is not necessarily the kind of bread and butter of of my role, but I think having something that really helps us build that golden thread through from when you build a building to when you're operating a building, you know, what that physical real estate is, I think would, again, it frees people up to focus on the business of,
0: yeah, and, and improves communication within, you know, a yeah. very fragmented um production line essentially, isn't yeah, it? And I, mean, and I think
1: that's that's sorry, that's a great way of putting it a production line. And um, you know, I think we often say real estate is one of the last kind of mass production industries that is done in a muddy field. And yeah. I think that kind of the I guess the paper trail that goes with that is also still perhaps a little bit um a little bit outdated. If we if that could be more digitalized, I think that would be great.
0: Bella, you've been very generous of your time, so it's time to wrap up. I've got three questions for you. The first one is, have you ever received any professional advice that's really helped you and benefited you in your career and which you'd now like to pass on to others?
1: I think one of the key things is to focus on your strengths. You know, we can get very hung up, I think, as humans, as individuals on trying to address areas of weakness, and that is definitely, that has a part to play. Um, But I think really understanding what your strengths are, and therefore when we talk about sort of being part of a diverse team of people... What are you bringing to that? And how can you kind of maximize on that? Because if you spend your whole career and your whole life trying to address weaknesses, that's a lot of energy. When if you focused on your strengths and were aware of your limitations, you might kind of have energy to put into what you enjoy and and what will reap rewards.
0: Yes. Gosh, that sounds wise. (laughs) I wish someone had told me that in my career. Um, Totally agree. Second question. If you'd had to choose an alternative career to real estate, what would that have been? It would have been a weather,
1: I I, I will not say weather girl because that's the terminology that I grew up with, but I guess weather person is probably the, the correct. Uh,
0: a meteorologist.
1: The correct. meteorologist. A meteorologist, yeah. <laughs> yes. But specifically, I want to be on the 10 o'clock news telling everyone whether, whether it's going to be sunny or rainy the next uh, day. Yeah. I, I used to be so fascinated by the weather Um, and actually picked my degree course to be able to study the climate and then my lecturer decided to go after the Sahara to do some research so I didn't get to do that module which was
0: a great moment.
1: <laughs> but yeah I, I love the weather I think it's
0: fascinating <laughs> right finally your last question who are the people in real estate you've looked up to in your career and you seek inspiration from
1: I think the biggest thing when I think about sort of what has inspired me what what are the points when it's hard or you're tired and you, what are the things that kind of make you want to keep going it is the people that you work with and you work for And I think right the way back to the beginning of my career, when I started out at Unite working, you know, for Joe Lister, you know, he was someone that I wanted to work for and showed me that you could be, you know, you could be a good person. You could be a nice person and still be really successful. You know, I think when I went to Native, Guy Nixon, who owns that business, he brought so much passion and enthusiasm and showed me that things can be so stressful, but doing things with a sense of humor is really important and kind of keeping that there when, you know, running your own business things. Things aren't always kind of rosy, but that, that was always kind of kept things grounded and fun and, um, as I say, kind of a passion. And then into Star, where Bob Faith sets the culture for our business and that culture of doing things in the right way is so important. Um, and I think, you know, continues to be, I guess, an inspiring way to lead, but also just being amongst a team of people that are passionate and are great at what they do. Um, you know makes it so much easier to come to work every day so I think you know what advice would I give to someone it's find an environment where you know you want to work for the people that you're working for and with the people that you're working with because I think that's such an important part of bringing out the best in you as an individual and certainly that's I think been been key in my career.
0: Bella we must draw to a close but thank you so much for spending time with me it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you you are most certainly an inspiration to all of us. I must let you return to your very busy life, but on behalf of myself and the audience, thank you so much for sharing your 2020 vision.
1: Thank you, easy
0: Real Estate 2020 Vision was brought to you by Lavanda, the world's leading flexible rental solution. For more information, visit getlavanda.com.